Jack Spierko with another edition of Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is Thursday, June the 14th, 2012. This is episode 922 of the Survival Podcast. I've got a cool one for you today. I've got a gentleman named Jerry Lesni- Jeremy Lesniak holding on the line. He is uh, kind of a technology guru, runs his own business, helping businesses set up their technology and provide redundancy for their technology. We're going to talk today about the roles that technology does and does not play in preparedness and in homesteading, how it can be a lot of help, how it can be a hindrance, and how to balance those two things. Before I bring Jeremy on, though, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. By making sure the show's here for you uh, five days a week, Monday through Friday. Sponsor of the day number one today is the Free State Project. Uh, did you know you can vote with your feet rather than vote in a voting booth? Yeah, you can vote with your feet. If you want to become part of the Free State Project, you can be part of a group that, it, that right now is over a thousand, and it is, the goal is for them to be 10,000 strong that all agree to move to New Hampshire and help turn it into the freest state in the nation to be a shining example of what freedom and libertarianism is all about. You can learn more at freestateproject.org. Check them out today. And if you don't want to vote with your feet, but you do like what they're doing, there are ways you can help. So check out their website. Get involved. Uh, you know, Go to Pork Fest. Go to Liberty Fest. Meet people up there. Maybe make a contribution. Uh, what they're doing in New Hampshire is important for us, even down here in the South. You know, uh, we're looking for land again in Texas. We want to buy 20 acres down there. I still support the Free State Project in New Hampshire because if they can do the things that they've set out to do, then other states will look to them and go, you know, maybe maybe this liberty thing's not a bad idea after all. And I think to really stand up to some of the things that are coming down from the federal level, we need a state to be taken over by liberty-oriented individuals. And that's what the Free State Project is all about, people working both inside and outside the system for the cause of liberty. Uh, next up today, Harvest Eating. Check out Chef, Chef Keith Snow's site, guys. Man, I talk about cooking all this stuff, and right now my garden is booming. When I get back, I'm going to do some video updates of what's actually going on in the garden, in addition to the permaculture videos I've been doing for you on the whiteboard. It is awesome. But I'm sitting here going, man, i got to figure out what to do with all this stuff. Whenever I have more of something than I know what to do with, I get over to Harvest Eating and I find a recipe on how to use it. And the things that he teaches are so universal as far as the cooking skills and the concepts and just certain techniques that even if it's not something directly related to the, the food that I have, I can find something I can do with that food and make a substitution. Pretty awesome. He's got his own show now, too, on Royal, Rural Free Delivery TV. I don't remember what channel that's on, but those of you on Dish and uh, DirecTV both have it. You can look it up online, Rural, Rural Free Delivery TV. Uh, and I'm going to be giving away a whole set of his spices in their new packaging next week when I get back. He was uh, nice enough to send me a full set. The way he's got them packaged now is a big improvement over the plastic bags. Uh, awesome stuff, and he concluded a few extras of my favorites, and of course one of my favorites is the uh, Montreal Steak Seasoning, so he threw in uh, two additional cans of that for me, and uh, so I appreciate that, and a whole set will be going out to a lucky member of the audience next week. Uh, next up, remember, you can support this show. It's really easy to do. 
it'll cost you about 20 cents an episode. Really, it's 18.3 if you do the math, but 18.3 cents if you do the math, but who's counting? But if you get off the air every day and think, you know, this show is worth 20 cents to me, it's, it's, it's worth that. I, if it went away, I would be unhappy. I, I would like to see it stick around. And we're not going anywhere. I'm not, you know, I'm trying to guilt trip you anywhere. I'm just saying, this is my value proposition. If you feel that way, then consider becoming a supporting member. I hear from people all the time, they go, you know, look, uh, I, I want to be a member. I, I really feel really bad. I've been listening to you for like a year, but my finances are tough right now and I'm paying off debt. Don't, 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 don't do it. That's my response. Don't even think about it. You know what? Square away your finances. But once they're squared away and you're living that self-sufficient life, if this has been part of it, consider joining the brigade. And you'll get a return of investment. You'll get discounts of 32 vendors, many of whom you're probably going to buy from anyway. You'll get over $150 worth of free ebooks for your $50 membership. You'll get two memberships from two of our supporting members and sponsors, Western Botanicals uh, and Safe Castle Royal, that will, will be worth $100 just for the two memberships they'll give you for free for joining my membership for $50. Bucks. It's a good deal. You'll get discounts on tons of stuff, including TSP Copper. Uh, member or not, check out TSP Copper for some really cool copper rounds as well. That's another way you can help support what we're doing here. With that, I do have the housekeeping wrapped up. I want to let you know, because I already recorded what you're about to hear. And this kind of happened after the fact, so uh, I didn't close the show letting you know this. And I don't like to do it when a guest is on as well. So before I bring our guest on today, tomorrow's show will be special. It will not be the typical Friday show. Those of you that love permaculture are going to have a real treat, because once again, returning to the show tomorrow will be Mr. Jeff Lawton. And the interview that I did with him uh, the first time was good. The interview that you're going to hear with Jeff tomorrow is phenomenal. Much more nuts and bolts, mechanics, how do I pick out land, what am I looking for, insight from a guy that's been doing this stuff since 1983. That's when he took his PDC. And uh, one of the most gifted teachers I've ever met in my life, a real mentor, he'll be here with us tomorrow. Uh, so just wanted you to know that. Now, without further ado, let me introduce today's guest, uh, Jeremy Lesniak. He has a degree in computer science, and uh, he is the managing editor of anewdomain.net, anewdomain.net, all one word, a tech journalism website. He prides himself on bringing simple solutions to complex technical problems for both residential and commercial Customers. He's also a martial artist, spends his evenings and weekends at the martial arts uh, gym, also doing gymnastics and CrossFit. He's a recent convert to the Prepper lifestyle. He says that's due mostly to the Survival Podcast. Uh, he's been listening to our show for a long time. He is a community member, and I think they always make the best interviews. And he actually just said, I want to come on the show, uh, not to promote my business or anything, but I actually just want to come on the show because I want to feel like I, I want to give something back. Because I've gained so much from uh, from the audience from the audience contributions and from the show itself, and that's awesome. And we're happy to have him here today. And with that, hey Jeremy, welcome to the Survival Podcast, man. Hey, thanks, Jack. It's great to be here. Hey, um, I, I'm really excited about today's uh, subject with you. We're going to be talking about technology and how it relates to uh, to homesteading and prepping and everything like that. But you want to tell people a little bit about kind of your background from the tech uh, tech side of things. Sure. Um, for the last 11 years or so, I've owned and operated Vermont Computing, which is a technology consulting firm that services both residential and business users. And in that time, I've dealt with literally hundreds to thousands of people and, and seen what they've wanted and needed and seen all the pitfalls and just kind of watched the way the tech industry has marched people into this uh, – compliance and uh you know there's there's a lot of mistakes that are a lot, a lot of people are making out there 
And um, what are your thoughts on, like, you know, kind of when people say things like, well, technology's great, but we can't rely on it in, in a breakdown. So let's not rely on it at all. I mean, because that's the objection I get. Mine is usually kind of, well, I, I can't rely on my car if there's peak oil, but I use it today. You might run out of bullets, so should you not have a gun? <laughs> okay. Very you know, cool. you, you use the tools you have at your disposal when you have them, and you plan for contingencies. So what are your thoughts on, uh, on on smartphones? And I was reading some of your notes, and you were saying you think everybody should have one. And uh, I think people are, you know, love them or hate them. They're in, like, two yeah. camps. Why do you think everybody should have a smartphone, man? Well, first off, I, I love and hate having a smartphone because – I'm always available. I, I think the reason everybody should have or at least strongly consider having a smartphone is because there is nothing else you can have on you that provides you with more connectivity and information to other people. I mean, if you think of a cell phone, you've got text and you've got voice right there. If you take a smartphone, you add things like email and, you know, we could be con if we needed to, you and I could be conducting this interview over Skype on our smartphones. Correct. Uh, a lot of the listeners are using uh, Zello, yeah. which, is, which is great. You know, there's just so many options out there for communication that there's nothing more versatile. You yeah. know, on that note, let me just say real quick, yeah. folks, if you haven't gotten the Zello app yet and looked up the Survival Podcast channel, do it because there are some great people on there. And there's a group having a conversation just about any time of the day or night. And it, it is really like if, if somebody showed me Zello and I didn't already own an iPhone, I think I would go get one. Just for Zello, you know. It, it, you know, I've been following some stuff on Zello, and it's really it's it's kind of a great extension of what's going on on the forums. And, and they're also using something else. I'm not. I haven't signed up for it yet, but they they keep harassing me too. It's called Polingo, and I guess they post pictures and stuff there that people can view mm -hmm. in real time while they're chatting. So it is pretty amazing what these phones can do for you. Yeah, yeah. So you got all the communication, and then stack on top of that near instant access to any information that you might need. You know, we talk about developing skills, and that's great, and the best place for inf information to be is in your head. But if you need information and it's not in your head, and you're in the car or, you know, on the side of the road or at work or, or anywhere, and you have a smartphone, you have access to that information. Are, are there some accessories that you think should be almost like mandatory if you're going to rely on it, though? Because, like, I love the GPS apps, but talk about something that eats a battery. So the second uh, I started playing with GPS on my iPhone, I went out and got a, a cord for the car where I normally, like, I'm such a, a non-power user, I, I would get two days out of my phone's battery. But as soon as I started putting that application into into effect you know it just like it's like driving an old pontiac with a 455 up a hill with the throttle down you can watch it fall sure sure um yeah everybody should have you know for for any phone if you're in the car that thing should be plugged in charging because you don't know when you're going to have access to electricity again suppose you're coming home from work and there's a power outage well, if the towers are up, you can make calls. But if you don't have a generator or a battery backup unit or something to recharge that phone, you're now limited to whatever that phone has for electricity. So I think everybody should have a charging cord. Everybody should have a headset. You know, regardless of how good of a driver you are, having a headset is going to be a little bit better to dramatically better for your driving habits. You know, no need to, to run anybody off the road or 
you know. Well, and I see other uses too, because like if if I like, let's take it as something simple, and it, this could also be something like where life's on the line, but we'll make it real simple. If I called you up from my cell phone and you were trying to help me with my computer because I was having a problem because you're an IT guy, and and I was telling you I'm looking at this and you're telling me type this in or go to this directory or whatever, my hands are free. Right, so I can take instruction yeah. and communicate with for three hands. So that could also be getting freaking medical instruction from somebody because I'm out in the middle of nowhere. I'm waiting for uh, emergency responders, but I'm on the phone with nine one one and I got a bleeding guy and I don't know what I'm doing. And they put a doc in touch with me and stuff like that happens. And you know, you're trying to do this stressful situation with a phone creak, you know, where you've got your your shoulder up to your ear. That just doesn't make sense to me. No. No, and and as cheap as stuff like a like a headset or a charging cord is, you know, there's really no excuse to to not have them. Plus, how are you gonna listen to the survival podcast on your smartphone if you don't have a headset? I mean, you know. <laughs> well, you can put the you can put the speaker on. Maybe your phone has a decent speaker, but yeah, not everybody yeah. does. And yeah, that's what it's all about. So you know, people do have this love hate relationship with technology. You said yourself with your smartphone, you have a love hate relationship. So how do you feel that like personal technology, like smartphones, like other things, can be you know helpful or hurtful in you know a homestead environment, a prepping environment? It's it's another tool in the toolbox. You know, just as you have people on all the time that have skills that can be, um, you know, you're talking about things that can be helpful in some scenarios or most scenarios. You know, technology plays a role in everybody's life every day, even if you're living up in the woods. If you have electricity, there's technology involved. There's computers that are managing that electricity coming into your home. So, you know, there's some dependence there. But realizing that it's not always going to be there or there and that there's potential for it to not be there for a while. Every electronic device that you have in your home that I have is going to break at some point. It's just it's going to fail. There are people they're designed to, right? And they're absolutely designed to. Um you've probably heard heard of the term actuary, you know, those people in insurance that help figure out what the risk is so the insurance companies can make way too much money off of us. Well, there are actuaries in warranties as well. So they'll figure out based on the elect- the electronics going in and how it's used and everything when it's going to break. And they make the warranty just a bit shorter than that. Yeah, when I was in the hardware industry and we would sell uh, computing hardware into like Alcatel for their, their switching systems and what have you, one of the specs we would always provide, and we're providing this to the, our customer, is MTBF or mean time, mean time between failure. And failure. Right? So that's like, it's, it's a, a flat out statement that if you have a hundred of these boxes, the average failure time after operation of X amount of hours, and it was, you know, many, many thousands and thousands of hours, but would eventually, you know, expect a failure. Right. Right. It doesn't matter how big, how expensive it is. The the best stuff can fail just maybe not just as easily, but just like the, the cheap stuff. So how do you keep technology preps, you know, things that you use for your prepping, for your homesteading, and, and you, you merge the technology in there? How do you prevent it from becoming like a burden? Um, there's a few things you can do. You can, first off, you can remember what it's like to not have it. You know, leave leave your home your phone at home once in a while. You know, take that risk and remember what it's like to to not have it. That's going to teach you why you have it, why you like having it, and it's also going to remind you, hey, you know, if, if such and such such and such happened right now, what would I do? 
how would I handle that scenario? You know, you're, you're practicing just like any of your other skill sets to practice what it's like to not have technology is really important. Yeah, I kind of always take it back to like grade school, right? So most of our high school kids are doing at least part of their math with calculators, and that's fine. But they learn to multiply, divide, add, and subtract, and long division, and fractions, and fraction conversions, and do all that stuff manually first right. so that they have the tech skill set, and then they can add the technology as a multiplier and, and do more faster. Uh, but if that thing's gone, they can still figure out the answer to the problem. At least we, we, we hope that that's what they're learning. I had a math teacher in high school that used to say that the calculator is only as smart as the person using it. I, I would completely agree with that. <laughs> Absolutely. So um, another big concern that people have is protecting their identity. Uh, and, and I think that part of that is from, let's say, the big brother of the world. And then some of that's just from the, you know, the, the scumbags that want your credit card number so they can sell it to 15 different Nigerians who will rapidly race to see who can max your credit card out first. And there's all different levels of identity and privacy security that people are concerned with today. So are there some ways that people can address that? Yeah. And, and you know, the first thing to say is that if you spend any time researching this aspect of technology, it's got to be one of the most gut-wrenching things you can learn about. Your credit card number is worth about $8. That's how many of them there are out there. Your social security number, I think, is worth $5. You know, it's... These now, that I've are... never heard before. Oh, yeah. I knew yeah. they sold them. I didn't know that was, like, the going rate, though, that, like, if I had a list of, like, a 1,000 SSNs, I could get... 500 or, yeah, what, $5,000? $5,000. Yeah, I might be off by a couple bucks, but the last time I checked on them, Still. they weren't worth a whole lot each because people were ripping them off in big bunches. Well, and I think from what I've seen of, like, the investigative reporting, part of what's commoditized them to that level is the guy selling them doesn't sell them to one person exclusively. Not, not like you can trust your identity theft broker right. very well to begin with, but they, they sell all the data to, like, multiple sources, and then, like I was saying, they all have to race to see how much they can extract from all the information that's available. Yeah. Yeah, so, you know, it doesn't matter how well you protect your credit card number and, and your Social Security number, because all those things are digital somewhere. They're on a computer. That computer is connected to the Internet through something. You know, it could be a few hops. Hopefully there's some good security there, but it's connected. Um, there was yeah, it's on a computer at your credit card company. It's on a credit card a number at your bank, right? And, and, exactly. And, and the hacker is going to – like that's harder to get into, but like there's a bigger payoff if they do. For sure. And we've had some high-profile hacks in the last few years. Um, you know, just – what was it? Last week, LinkedIn got hacked. Now, granted, there's no uh, social security numbers there. There's no credit card numbers there. But LinkedIn is a very large social network. In theory sure. – they should know what they're doing. They are a web-based company. They should have all the protection in the world. And you know what? They do. But they still got hacked. And, and plus, once I'm into your, to LinkedIn and I'm into the back end of that and then I have access to, to Jeremy's account, I have the ability to communicate with everybody that Jeremy's a connection with and make them think I'm Jeremy. Right. And, and there's a huge risk when, when, when we have things like that going on. And, then, you know, they try to, you know, people wonder all the time, why does somebody want to hack into your Facebook account? Well, because they can convince your mom that they're you and they you need the credit card number or whatever it is. 
um, and they can play that game for a long time, and they can they can learn an awful lot about you. They can profile you uh, very very well, not just from your public information. Once they get on the private side, uh, they can figure out things like what time your mom's home and what time you're home, and then you know, I mean, that just leads to a whole world of danger. Yep, and you know, it's not it's not just that that one off sort of case of you know people wanting to communicate with my mom on Facebook. There are companies out there referred to as data aggregators, and their job is to figure out who you are and everything about you so they can sell that information. Now, supposedly they're all doing this with completely legal public means, but you know, we've we've seen that not every company has been respectful of those rules and they delve into some gray area. If someone sells them a big batch of information that they ripped off of Facebook, LinkedIn or what have you, who's to say they actually check out how they got it? Well, in many cases, there would be plausible deniability because the seller would say, we use our proprietary technology to data mine on the Internet, and we can't tell you how we do it. All we can do is guarantee the validity of the data. Absolutely. These people really are looking to buy a pool in the next year. Because that's that's the kind of things a lot of these people are doing. Or these really are purchasing managers at companies in X sector that do an average of $1 million to $10 million in annual revenue. That's... Those companies that are, at least on the surface, legit, that's the information they want. Right. The the last scary thing I'll throw out there before I throw some some positive and some here's what you can do (laughs) stuff at you. Um, One of the largest investors in Facebook is the CIA. Yeah. You know, and that that sounds like tinfoil hat brigade stuff, but it's not. It's, you know, it's been well documented they and, and that that was pretty early on. If you were the CIA, would Facebook not be your dream? Oh, I would like. Of course. I be, mean, and, and to think that a, an agency as sophisticated as the CIA would ignore it—that that's just kind of foolish, right? So now, did now, the government have a lot of fingers into the Google Pie as that got created too? Um, no, actually, Google does a really good job of fending off. Really. Those requests, yeah, they're, uh, Google's actually pretty public about the number of requests they get for information from various government agencies, both in the U.S. and outside. And I've been impressed when comparing them to other companies of their size and, and other companies that have the sort of information that Google does. How often Google says, "No, go away." That's that's good to hear because my understanding was completely the opposite. <laughs> Well, they've got a lot of information, and they've got yeah. more information than most companies. But if you look at it as a percentage of those requests, they they fight more for, for our, I don't want to say personal freedom, but our privacy than their competitions do. Well, because their whole business model depends on it, because they're not Facebook, right? Even though they're exactly. trying with Google+, which is just not going to happen, um, their their whole revenue model is based on selling advertising based on contextual search. That's going to be and stay 90% of their revenue for a long time. If they lose trust, they don't have that. Where people on Facebook already know that a lot of their information is being shared because they're sharing it. So I think people are a lot more sensitive if somebody like a search engine shares their information than they are at Facebook because there's my profile. And unfortunately, I think our young people are getting to a point where they're not even worried about it. They'll, you know, they'll open their whole lives up because like, they've yeah. grown up with it. Right. They, they, don't, they don't care. It's, it's been shown. People in their, in their teens and even their 20s now have absolutely no idea what privacy is. And for some, that can be really scary. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not going to lie. I tend to live in public, as some 
would call it. Um, you do a fair job of that too. You're pretty mm-hmm. open about what you do. You don't publish your address, correct? You know anywhere. But you know what? I'm sure if somebody really wanted to find you, oh, no they problem. probably could, right? No problem. Um, but that's not that's not the end of the world. You know, if somebody really wants to track you down, that's they're you're probably not going to be. Uh, well, you'll have a special greeting for them. If they yes, yeah, I, I've, I've always said that with people that like, well, would people know you're a prepper, and then you know the end of the world comes, and I'm like, man, if I was unprepared and I had no food, and I was the kind of person that would go steal from other people, and I had a list of where preppers were, I would go to every other freaking house. Because I would know that the people that are prepared are also prepared to defend themselves. Right. I mean, that's the the worst thing to do. You can have my, you know, the old saying, you can have the gun, but you're getting the bullets first. That's that's kind of what you're running into there. Sure. So, so the first thing to do to kind of fend off identity theft is to understand what's going on. Even if you don't use Facebook, you should understand what Facebook does. Even if you don't understand how, even if you don't have a cell phone. You should understand that the cell phone providers got so sick and tired of information requests that they gave back doors to the law enforcement agencies. They don't even need subpoenas to go in. Most people don't know that. I didn't know that. So you're saying that most law enforcement agencies can just go access cell phone records without a warrant, without anything. Exactly. Hmm. Because it was costing them too much manpower to handle those requests. So if you want, you want to talk about an industry that rolled over on privacy, it's the cell phone industry. So understanding what's going on is really the first thing. So you can know, you know what, even if this doesn't affect me directly, what if my friends, my family, somebody that is associated with me is affected? I could be affected as a third party. So knowledge is key there. And then the second thing, you know, Back in the days of our grandparents, they would balance those checkbooks down to the penny. And if something was missing, they were going to find it. You know, they didn't just, oh, you know, I'll just, I'll just code an adjustment into Quicken or, you know, just wash it out. Or, as I've talked to some people that do, get a new checking account every two years. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Blows yeah. me away that people handle money that way. But. Yeah. You've got you to gotta watch your accounts. You've got to watch all of your accounts and, and check into them every few weeks because the people that are stealing your money, if they are going to go that route, they're usually not saying, ooh, I've got this credit card number or I've got this checking account number and trying to clean it out all at once Mm-mm. because that raises red flags. So they might, try, they might withdraw a dollar or they might move $10 or add a new user account on the online banking system. Or put 20 bucks in their car, you know. Yeah. All kinds of little stuff goes on. And those amounts are usually small enough that you miss them. So if you're not watching like a hawk, they're going to put you into a special bucket and say, ooh, this is a person that we can probably get away with some stuff on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I mean, this is why I actually I like services like PayPal and online banking because it's real easy to once every couple of days or even every day log in and look at the transaction records. Mm-hmm. And that way it's fresh in your mind. And if, if, if it says you put gas in your car three towns over and you haven't been there, then you know something's not right and you can act on it early. And like with PayPal, every single time that there's a deposit, an expenditure, a withdrawal, 
anything, you get an instant email alert. So if you have your smartphone set up with your email, I mean, you know that immediately. So yes, I guess there's a somewhat of a you know a risk as far as protecting the access to those things, but anything that's done with it, you have very very quick notification. Absolutely, and you know there are a lot of people that object to online banking. You know, and I'm not. I don't want to rain on their parade. I don't want to say that you know their way is is wrong. Everybody's got to do what's right for them. But to not participate in online banking and think that your accounts are safe. From other people on the internet, yeah, it's foolish. Because what did I what did I say at the beginning? Your information is on a computer somewhere connected to the internet, whether or not you use it. Yeah, back in like 2005, I think it was. I got a letter from the Department of Veteran Affairs, and it said, "Dear Veteran, um, a laptop was misplaced by an employee for the Department of Veteran Affairs. There were over three million veterans' personal information on that laptop." Unfortunately, yours was among them. However, we don't believe that there is any risk to your personal information whatsoever. None of the information apparently has been currently used, and we're working hard to ensure that it never will be. Thank you, you know, and from some brigadier general or something like that that was responsible for the department or whatever. And I'm going, well, that's that's just great. So the U.S. government can't even keep the records of its veterans. And this is, I think, something very important for people to grasp. When I was discharged from the military back in 1993, very little of this crap was computerized back then in the first place. And now it is. So even things that you've done 30, 40 years ago uh, might have your information and now be in a much more portable form. Yeah. While you were talking, Jack, I I brought up some numbers just because I wanted to be sure. Back in 2008, there were more than 12,000 laptops being lost every week at airports. 12,000. So what's the math on that? Six million? Yeah, that's a lot. actually represents more than a couple of those. And a few of those might be bank employees, government employees, et cetera. Absolutely. I know back around, I think it was 2010... Uh, I think this was also DOD, did an experiment to check their own security. And what they did was they took some random USB drives and tossed them out in the parking lot uh, where their employees parked. And these little USB drives, if they were plugged into any of the machines on the network, would basically tell uh, on the person to plug them in and said, you know, this guy is a dumbass and took an unknown device and plugged it into his computer. Well, they put out, like, I don't know, like a few dozen of these things, and they figured, like, maybe one or two, right? And they would, initially, it wasn't really to check their security. It was to check their personnel. They were looking for a couple, you know, they figured everybody's got an idiot, so we're going to find the idiot. Right. Well, I, if I remember right, it was somewhere in the neighborhood of 60% of them that were found were taken inside and plugged in to computers on secure networks. Now, right. at that point, the breach is broke, man. You can do, if you can get somebody to be logged in, and, and plug a device directly into their machine, you can pretty much do anything at that point. In hacking lingo, that's referred to as social engineering, the notion that the human being is often much easier to compromise than the computer. Hmm. If you remember what went on with Iran a couple years ago, we just had all that information come out about uh, the um, their uranium enrichment program and all the equipment that we managed to get a virus onto, the Stuxnet virus. That's how they got that in there. USB thumb drive. Wow. Absolutely amazing. So are there certain like things that you really think people shouldn't do then? Like do you have any like technological pet peeves or anything like that? 
I do. Um, I've got a, three of them, and I feel that if you follow these three, uh, you're usually going to be protected from most stuff. Of course, the identity theft, that's a whole different ballgame. Uh, not running antivirus software. I get far too many people to say, oh, I, I know what not to click on. I don't open attachments from people that I don't know. The majority of infections today spread via email and come in an attachment from someone you know. Because the infection will come in, compromise your computer, look at your address book, and send out an email to everyone you know. And most of us have received an email from someone we know that doesn't sound right. Maybe they're at, I'm, I'm in England and I need $400 to get back to the United States. Or maybe it's just a link and the link isn't to anything that seems contextually relevant to things that you and this person talk about. Yeah, definitely. And I think one thing people do not understand at all is I don't even have to, like people will send out, I, I love when you see it, it'll come in from somebody you know, and it'll be some weird ass long link with like a, it's like buried in some deep directory of a WordPress blog, mm-hmm. you know, and you see like WP content is part of it and you just know this is all wrong. And you know what happened, so you just delete it. And like a couple hours later, you get an email from that person that says, my email was hacked. And I don't have to hack your email. All I have to do is know who you know and what their emails are. And I can send an email to all your friends as you without using your server. I just put that that's the the reply to address. Right. So I I can do that with Outlook and, and make you think that your friend sent the email, as long as I know his email address. I don't have to have access to his email account. Fortunately, that method trips most spam filters now, but it does still get through. Sure. Sure. Especially if you turn your spam filtering off, which many people do. (laughs) Right. Um, So the next thing that really ticks me off is when people don't run good search protection on their electronic devices. You know, most people will put a search protector on their computer, but they won't put it on their 60-inch plasma TV that costs three times as much as their computer. And when I say good quality search protection, I don't mean this little $3 power strip that you got at Walmart. That's not worth $3. All that does is split the power outlet so you can plug more than one thing in. You should have a surge protector that, you know, costs you at least 20 bucks. Ideally, have a battery backup unit for your computer. Anything that you have of value should have a surge protector. Because a surge protector is always going to be cheaper than the thing that you're protecting. <laughs> you know, on the battery backup, and what I have may be overkill because my business is contingent upon it. And all it took was, ever, you know, being in the middle of one show I had 40 minutes into and have it all shut off to realize how important battery backup was for my computer. But I have a 1,500-watt APC uh, backup uh, power system with surge protection. It'll run my modem. Uh, my monitor, my computer, my recording gear, everything I need to basically stay online as long as there's still an Internet connection out there. Um, and it'll do that for about an hour uh, with everything running full tilt. Like I said, that's probably more than most people need. All you really need is to be able to do a controlled shutdown. But, um, it, it, you know, every once in a while we have a power glitch, you know. And, I mean, the power is out for like three seconds. But all the lights in the building go out. But all I hear the box do is go click. Right. Click. And I go, okay, that just saves an hour. And, and, and that thing was about 300 bucks. It's paid for itself so many times. Yeah, those things are wonderful. Uh, a 1500 is is a good size unit. It's bigger than most people need. Most people should be around 750 to 1000 
uh, voltage amp VA range, uh, but you can get a 425, uh, maybe even a 350 for about 50 bucks. And like you said, that gives you just enough to protect from from low voltage or you know the power shutting off completely for a few seconds to a few minutes. And oftentimes that's all you need. The other thing to keep in mind with surge protection is, you know, we all think about these surge protectors protecting from you know these big huge lightning strikes and everything, but electronics take damage over time from over voltage and under voltage. And having a surge protector does help with that. It helps extend the life of your electronics. Extend those MTBS, right? Exactly. I really never thought about that. I know it can be expensive, though. We had a uh, Hitachi TV, and I don't even think it was a surge. I don't know what actually happened, but a surge certainly could cause it because I had it on surge protection. Uh, but I'm sitting in my office, and I just hear pop, and that was it. Some freaking module that would have cost $800 if I didn't have a warranty uh, uh, blew up. <laughs> Fortunately, it was still under warranty. And I, uh, One thing I could say, uh, technology, right, TVs, uh, if you have a Costco... Uh, a great place to buy your big screen TVs, your plasmas, and things like that because they automatically extend your warranty a year for free. Yeah, yeah, Costco's a wonderful, wonderful place to buy stuff. Absolutely. So, so I'm sorry, we were on your pet no, peeves. No, that's all right. That's all right. Um, and I got one more, and that's not backing up your information. People tell me every day, "Oh, well, you know, this stuff isn't that important. It's not." Oh, okay. You're sure? Yeah. Okay. So this thing catches fire tomorrow. And you lose everything on here. You're okay with that? Oh, yeah. no. My, pictures of my kids are on there. Yeah. Really? Well, that sounds like a big deal. That sounds like something you should deal with. Yeah, you say, can, can I hold that for a second and format your C drive for you? Exactly. <laughs> you know? <laughs> They'd probably say yes because they don't know what that means. They don't means. know what it but means, yeah. If they, um, you know, I believe in, in uh, and this isn't my concept, but 321 backup. Back up in three different – have your information in at least three different places on at least two different formats and have one of those physically away from your computer. You know, so some do you manner like of services off-site. then like Carbonite? I do. Uh, Carbonite has you – know, there are some things that I don't like about Carbonite. I don't think it's a great choice for businesses, but for the home user at, what is it, 59 bucks a year, yeah. you really can't do much better. Uh, for, for listeners, Carbonite is one of many services that will monitor your computer, and whenever a file changes or you make a new one, it'll upload a copy of it to a secure, encrypted location on their servers. Um, I also like uh, the service Dropbox. I use it kind of in a backup situation. I have multiple computers, and it allows me to keep my information synchronized between my desktop, my laptop, and my phone. What are your thoughts about services? It's not really a backup service, but I, I can say it's saved my butt a few times because I might leave the office and leave my computer on because I forgot to shut it off, and I left Outlook open, mm-hmm. and it's pulling pulling stuff off my server, and I have my office machine set up that when I pull something down, it takes it off the server. Right, and you want so to now I got to go back to so I can jump on go to my PC and 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 either access the email via that or it, or I can you know shut off. My email program that I should have shut off when I left anyway, even though I have a sign on the door reminding me to do it, some days I forget. Sure, sure. Um, um, services like that, remote access software, is, is wonderful. Um, you know, it is pretty secure unless you're using a foolish password. Um, go to my PC, makes a great product. Uh, I like LogMeIn because they have a free version. And last I knew, go to my PC did not have a free version, they had a trial. 
Um, we use that with some clients. Um, in fact, I did some work today. I'm working from my home office. Our company office is 45 minutes away. I did some product receiving, and I wasn't even there. You know, I'll just pop on real quick, 15 minutes, and I'm out. And it saved me an hour and a half of driving. Wow, and it's logged me in there, free stuff. How does it compare to go to my PC? Because I'm all for free as long as I don't give anything up I need. It works well. You know, I, I would say I'm when I use a product, I'm probably using it harder and in a, in a, a more intense way than 99% of the population, and log me in works fine for me. Okay, great. How do they make money if they give it away? I guess that's the well, same way have, everybody else does. They have some pay versions, and, and they do have some features. Um, like one of their, their big things now is they have a great product for the iPad that you have to pay for. Oh, okay. So they hook you on the fact that I can get, you know jump on one way, but now I want the iPad app because that's what I'm mobile with most of the time. And good, good. Because I, I, my, my only concern, like I don't, I'm not like one of these people like, you know, those guys are making money. That's terrible. I love when people make money because right. then then they stay around. And I because like a lot of times when I see a service that um, is completely free and I don't see a revenue model, I'm really hesitant to use it and make it a key part of anything I'm doing because that means that I, that one day I might need it and it's gone. Um, I, that's why I love to see a company I'm doing business with making money because then I can depend on them to actually be there. Yeah. Yeah, it, it, it's true. The majority of businesses on the Internet don't have a really strong business model, and that's why you see so many of them fade away so quickly. And what did you say the other one you liked for backup was other than uh, than Carbonite? Dropbox. You know, to be honest, it's not truly oh. a, a backup product, but... Um, it can effectively be one for certain yeah. things. Yeah, yeah. I, know, I know that service, because we've used it with large files that are too big to, uh, to email. It, it saves my butt all the time. You know, I keep customer information in Dropbox, you know, because it is password protected it is secure and if i'm on site with a client and i forget the password to their server or something i pull it up in the file on my phone that makes I, sense i barely even take my laptop out anymore and then i like the fact like with work work group sharing and all google docs and that effectively creates a backup of data as well not for everything but for your spreadsheets and documents yep um actually i once a week i back up my google docs locally to my computer that uh, makes sense I've got it right on my calendar. Same thing, our our uh, CRM, our customer relationship management database. I make a weekly backup of that because those are those are cloud-based services and they're great. And I believe that those companies are making good backups. But you know what? Sometimes crap happens. Yeah, absolutely. Hey, um, we were talking about cell phones earlier and privacy issues. So, of course, uh, we've gotten to a world now where everybody with a prepaid cell phone is trying to set off an IED in, in Iraq, I guess, is the way they want us to believe about it. But is there any real level of privacy anymore with the prepaid phones? There can be if you're smart about it. Okay. So, you know, we, we all know that cash is, is kind of going away, but at least for now, we can still take some, some greenbacks out of the bank and walk to a store. And if you do that... If you go to a store, and if you're if you're really concerned, go to a store a couple hours away. You can buy a prepaid phone outright, and you can buy a card with cash. And then when you activate that, there's there's really no way to track that back to you. Of course, they can monitor your calls and figure out who you're calling. But there are a lot of people that don't use cell phones, excuse me, because they're concerned of being tracked. And this can be one way to make it a little bit less concerning. Interesting, interesting. Because I mean, one of the things that just really kind of bugs me is the fact that you just basically said that 
law enforcement now just has unfettered access to cellular phone records. Um, and, and I'm a supporter of law enforcement. I don't want people getting away with things that are, that are crimes and stuff, but it kind of bothers me that my private conversations with somebody would be something that uh, an organization could access with absolutely no justification at all at this point. Well, to be fair, it's not the conversations that they have access to. It's, okay. it's the records okay. such as on this day at this time, you made a call to this number, you received a call to this number. And how the long big, it lasted. And Right. The big thing that they're using it for also is uh, GPS. Sure. And knowing where you were. Um, it's it's slimy. I mean, I really can't put it any other way. Uh, yeah, they should have to submit a subpoena every time, but because the cell phone carriers are the ones that hold that information and they don't want to deal with it. You know, it costs money. That's money that would have to come. Well, in theory, they would have to turn around and charge us. I'm sure they'd find a way to charge us four times more than it really needed to be charged at. Um, you can probably see what I think of those folks. But, um, you know, they're going to roll over. They're just saying, oh, you subpoena? You, you want to know what this 16-year-old kid and where they were last week? Yeah, sure. Here you go. You know, here's some records. Wow. Wow. So, I mean, I think a, a reason that a lot of people don't really bring technology into the preparedness sector much is because there's the apocalyptic only prepper. And and I really try to get those people off of that ledge and, and understand that it's not just the apocalypse we're preparing for. And those people feel like, well, if there's the apocalypse, whatever it is in their mind, whether it's a coronal mass ejection a global pandemic and an economic collapse, whatever that is, that if it's anything other than everything is gone, there's going to be stuff left in an attempt to put things back together. And localized disasters, regional disasters, personal disasters are all things that are more likely. So in that standpoint, if I'm running a business and I'm heavily tech dependent, such as I am, or I am simply in a situation where I rely on technology to communicate and get information, doesn't it stand a reason then that people should have kind of a technology disaster plan or a module within their plan for technology? Yeah, it's something that I have all but taken to screaming at my clients about because they don't want to listen. People do not, you know, I mean, it doesn't matter whether whether it's my business customers that don't want to think about what happens what do they do for their business to keep it running if their building burns down and they now lost their server, their computers and everything else? It's the same deal as when, you know, anybody in this community is trying to talk to somebody about, hey, what do you do if, you know, you're that town up in Alaska that couldn't get fuel? What was that over, over this last winter, right? And fuel was coming in at like nine bucks a gallon. And food was expensive because they were having to truck it in. The winter went screwy or something. You know, wh what do you what do you do if you can't get food at the grocery store? How much do you have on hand? You know, it's that same ostrich head in the sand mindset that so many people like to have because if they recognize a problem and then they don't address that problem, then they're liable. They like to feel that you know if if I pretend that's not over there and it happens, then I can just you know I can pretend I'm not responsible which of course is BS. We know that. So one of the things I always talk to my clients about is you need a technology disaster plan. And I've put together a template over the years, just a bunch of scenarios that people don't usually think about, such as what if a prominent person in your organization destroys information and then quits? What do you do? 
what it what it god forbid they were the it person now you're really stuck yeah you better take care of your it guy he can uh <laughs> can make your life a living hell and i mean it's a real risk because like i know that any corporation i've ever worked for especially like people that have access to customer databases like salespeople, even if you terminated a person under good circumstances or they've resigned under good circumstances, uh, even if you don't want to, it was always kind of like, okay, we're going to have the HR meeting and you're going to be escorted to the building right. because if that guy has access, let's say, you know, I'm using ACT and I'm going to have a corporate ACT database, well, they can take the entire customer database with them. So yeah. it's all HR already gets this, but yet when you when you when you try to put it in a bigger context for them, I think it's the exact same pushback we get from family members. I don't want to think about that. Right. So I put together, I, I think it's something like 13 different scenarios that businesses really need to prepare for. Ideally, they need to run some tests, you know, like a fire drill, run a technology disaster drill. What do you do? What do you do if you have to take your business off site? Uh, I live up here in central Vermont, and we had some absolutely atrocious flooding the end of uh what was that end of august last year flooding that we've some have said have never seen a lot of people weren't prepared there were businesses that suffered some went under because they didn't have any kind of plan um so that that template uh i'm sure you'll put a link in the show notes today uh is available for free it's just some things for people to think about yeah i'll definitely put that in the show notes on a personal level, I talk to residential users all the time, and they're saying, oh, well, you know, my computer's not that important. I don't need it. You know, if my, if my house burns down, the last thing I care about is my computer. I just want to make sure my family's safe. Okay, that's great. Well, I can tell you from experience that if a computer repair goes more than 24 hours, we have a very frustrated customer on our hands. When do I get my computer back? I need it right now. I need to send email. I need to check Facebook. All these things have become very important to people, and that's okay. I'm not, I'm not making a judgment call there. They're very important to me too. But if your computer does go belly up, what do you do? Do you have a good backup? What if, um, you know, what if that computer is not recoverable? What if, you're in, what if you need to bug out? Do you take your computer? You know, how, how does tech, you know, not just your home computer, but technology in general, fit into your preps. Yeah, I mean, that makes perfect sense. And I think that, like, another thing people need to think about is, like, some of the first questions that people are going to have for you is, like, contacting your insurance agent and things like that. And a lot of times, that's in a computer. Mm -hmm. uh, or I know how to get to it, but it's online. And, you know, being able to restore all of that data and get that information is often key to rebuilding. I, I think another thing, like the business customers just really need to think about it, is there are scenarios where, for good or ill, depending on the situation, that we could end up under a quarantine or martial law scenario. And if that happens in Manhattan or that happens in Chicago and you're a business there, then your employees can't get to work. But that doesn't mean your customers in Florida care. Right. So having remote working capability to me is a huge component of this. Or, you know, we have all of the when I did the technology recruiting thing, we got everybody on a remote access because that way when there was an ice storm and they oh, I can't come to work, I don't want you to come to work. I don't want you hurt. Log into your machine, work from home today. 
And, and that way we were still placing clients and still g generating revenue. And our IT guy that would, you know, see anything at the location was like a half a mile away. So he could be on site and maybe one or two other people could get in. But the, the whole business was still running. Now, that's not the apocalypse. But, you know, we had the one year that we had the Super Bowl in Dallas. We had the city shut down for a week. I mean, it was it was two inches of ice everywhere, and the temperature never got above, like, 17 degrees for that week. And we didn't have a single vehicle out there capable of dealing with it. They're throwing sand on ice. That just doesn't do anything. Right. You know, and, and that, that's a scenario that pops up all the time. The majority of people in this country deal with winter weather. There are going to be days you can't get to work. As a business owner, to enable your people to be productive, it, it just it's a no-brainer. Yeah, because your customer's like, well, where's this contractor? Well, I don't know, and I can't find him because I can't get access to all of my ways to communicate with him because right. that's at the office. And, you know, and there's all kinds of storm flooding, all these things. The building might be intact, but can your people get in there? Or is right. it safe to go in there? You know, the equipment might be running, but maybe there's flooding, so they're not allowing people into that area. But you could be working, but you're not. I think that that's something a lot of business owners, and I, I know there's a lot of people on this show that are like, well, I don't own the business, but a lot of you guys out there work for companies that are relatively small concerns, 25 employees, that type of thing. This stuff's not really expensive for them to implement. And I think one thing that employees need to start understanding is your business success is your paycheck. Right. If the business gets hurt, you get hurt, too. Yeah, it's you know, that that's a, a mindset that I see all the time. People. Oh, well, you know, it's not my responsibility. OK, well, um, when you're unemployed and you can't feed your family and you had this information that you could have brought to your higher ups, don't come crying to me. Don't blame me. Yeah, absolutely. It's not an us and them. It's us when you work for somebody. And right. I know that's harder to understand when you work for, and I understand, you know, I don't really agree with it, but I understand the mentality of the person that works for the 25,000 employee corporation. Like, I don't have time. They're not going to listen to me anyway. But when you work for these smaller concerns, I, I'd say anything under 100 employees, and you're anything more than the guy that sweeps the, the, the floor, you can generally talk to somebody who matters. And even if they say, go away, don't bother me, you tried. Right. And, and I think it's the same as trying to talk to our friends and family about prepping. We don't necessarily need to say, hey, prepare for the apocalypse and have a year's worth of food, but we should at least breach the subject. And if they turn us off, we can be turned off, but at least we've, we've tried. We've planted the seed, so to speak. Right. So now you can, you know, now you can come cry to me. Yeah. <laughs> I'll listen. I'll right. Listen. Exactly. It's like people don't want to complain about the politicians, but they didn't vote. You know, I don't care who you vote for, but vote, vote for Mickey Mouse. But but show up and, and make your point uh, if you want to complain about what they're doing. Sure. One of the things we kind of walked over and, and walked away from that I, I did want to make sure we talked about was having backups to technology in your prep. So let's say you have mapping software on your smartphone or you have a GPS. Do you also have a map or an atlas? Do you know how to use it? Things like that. Um, when people rely on tech and they forget, you know, going back, we talked about the calculator, not knowing how to add and subtract without a calculator. To, to be able to understand what to do without the technology makes you that can it, it could save your life it probably mm. won't but it's a much more responsible way to look at technology technology is a gift it's not a right 
it's not like you know we don't have we have the right to breathe and and occupy some space and you know interact with other people in society we don't have the right to an iphone sure and all those things that people know how to do because they have an iphone or a computer or whatever that right could be taken away what if the cell phone towers go down that happens there are so many things that could happen that could render your computer, your internet access, your television useless. It's not just that the electricity goes out. It could be that cell phone towers go out. It could be that one of the major internet hubs linking things up goes down. In theory, the internet has redundancy, but we've seen, we've all experienced outages. You know, Google has outages yeah. periodically with Gmail. And I, it, I would say that this this little story here I'll tell is is old enough now that it would be okay to release this information. I worked for uh, a variety of companies in, in the Frisco area that when we, when we had this kind of conglomerate thing going on before I went off and did this full time. And one of them was a technology uh, research and software development company for major telecom carriers like AT&T with predictive-based algorithms. And we looked at their network in the New York City, Manhattan area. This is AT&T's main network. And we're able to tell them, if you don't do the following things, within six months, the network will fall over. I'm talking catastrophic failure in one of the and, – and a lot of the other providers, of course, they do a lot of sharing of technology. So this would have basically shut down cell service in, in the whole greater Manhattan area mm-hmm. and honestly the five boroughs around New York City, all of it. And they actually didn't believe it. It took a lot of convincing for them to accept this fact. So our one of our sales pitches as always was from that company, do you know? The, if, and the, the answer is a lot of these companies, cell phone uh, systems, all of this stuff, they don't know how close to the edge that they are. And, you know, 9-11 showed us how quickly just usage spikes can can cause this. But there, this would have been a major, I want to be clear, this would have been a major catastrophic failure. And it would not have been, oh, let's go throw a couple boxes in and fix it. Uh, it, it was actually not that hard to fix since we knew it was coming. But if, if if we didn't have that relationship with that customer, uh, it would have been a major catastrophic failure. And that's just one example in a real world scenario where nothing technically broke. You know, they didn't, nobody had to have a, an electrical storm or a flood or anything like that. It just would have fallen over as a capacity issue. Yeah, yeah, it's it's amazing how many almosts there are <laughs> with things like that. I, I can't tell you how many times I stumble upon, uh, you know. A customer server. Oh, it's been running really slow. You know, when I run a diagnostic and the hard drive is transferring information at one one hundredth of what it should be, which is, you know, about the final stage before it just stops spinning. Uh, you know, I, I can't tell you how many times like that I've made a computer run better for somebody with a vacuum cleaner. <laughs> oh, n- make sure you never touch it to the computer, though. They generate. No, I'm just talking about the vents. You know, just by cleaning yeah, out yeah. freaking dust. You know, it's, it's, it's kind of running slow and all, and you touch it and it's running like a billion degrees hot. Yep. And it's just like, have you ever cleaned this thing? I didn't know you were supposed to clean it. Well, you don't put it in the dishwasher or anything, but, you know, it's, it's, it, it's crazy to me that low tech things, you know, like yeah. that. We find spiders in computers all the time. Spiders. Sometimes live ones, you know, nice, pretty web. Yeah. Big old funnel web. Yeah. <laughs> right across the motherboard. That's great. You know, that's good for performance. Absolutely. And the heat thing, I think, is something people don't take into consideration. Electron, any electronic device is going to generate heat. Yep. And if you put enough of them together in a contained enough area and you don't have any supplemental cooling, 
you you will create catastrophic failure. And the heat is the number one thing that kills them, and dust is the thing that creates the most heat. It acts as an insulator. So to just buy a can of compressed air, I think Costco sells six packs for like under 20 bucks. So there's no excuse not to have at least one. You can go to Staples and get one for six, seven bucks if, if you just want to go with a single. And just take it around every three months and blow out all the vents and all your electronics. Do it on your TV and your DVD player. They will last longer. And think about the fact that there's an airflow there, and it's down on the floor usually where the dust is. Mm-hmm. And then got, folks that are sitting in front of your computer listening to this right now, if you want a reinforcement of, uh, of how important this is, look at your keyboard and look between your keys. And if you look at the dust that's in there, it's probably a lot worse on the electronics uh, underneath your desk. And I you think that do, You want to do something know. really gross, take your, compu- take your keyboard, flip it over, and shake it. <laughs> and you see what comes out of there. You will, you will probably go out and buy a new keyboard. Yeah, I need a new one anyway because my letters are all running off, rubbing off. <laughs> anyway, what are your thoughts on um, on on search technology from a standpoint of uh, user side? Uh, we talked about like the search engines, you know, where they do and don't, don't protect your data. Sure. But you know, I was kind of a marketer slash, slash search engine optimizer, so I think a lot of things I take for granted about the ability to run. Uh, like Boolean queries and stuff like that on search engines uh, for granted because I needed to know how to do that so I could see who my competitors were, what they were ranking for, and get very specific. But there's a lot more than just sticking two or three words into Google and hitting search. Absolutely. And, you know, we're in a time now where there, there has never been more information freely available to us for so little cost. Even if you can't afford a computer and you can't afford internet at home, you probably have high-speed internet and computers freely available to you at a library. You can learn more from an hour on the internet than you probably did in a week at school growing up. Um, and it, 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 it boggles my mind how terrible most people are at gathering information on the internet. I'll have people email me, I'm trying to find this, and it takes me 30 seconds because they just don't know where to start. So there's a couple things you can do. First off, practice. I can't tell you how much information's fallen out of my head over the years because I can just quickly pull it up on the Internet. I try and save it all, but, you know, there's too much in there. It's fallen out sides of my ears, I think, or something. So to practice, to practice looking up, oh, what is, who was that actor? Oh, he was in this such and such movie, boom, boom, boom. Oh, okay, there it is. It was, I don't know, Tommy Lee Jones. You know, okay. So the next time I have to go do a search, maybe about a movie actor, I can remember, here are some of the things that worked, some of the things that didn't. Like anything else, search is a skill, and it requires practice. You mentioned Boolean operators, things like, putting an and, uh, you know, an ampersand in. Uh, the best one, if you're searching on Google and you want to look up an entire string of words, because if I put in the survival podcast, I'm gonna, my results ideally are going to start with everything that is the survival podcast in order, but I'm probably going to get podcasts about survival. And I'm also going to get a podcast that mentioned the survival Bible as an advertiser, you know, something like that. So you can actually put quotes on either end of the, the words that you're using. And I could search for, quote, the survival podcast quote, 
and it's only going to give me results that have those three words in that order. Yeah, and I think like one of the biggest things people can do to to like learn all of these things because I I know all the shortcuts. You know, if if, if I wanted to find the survival podcast but nothing to do with uh, I don't know guns, I could do quote the survival podcast end quote minus guns. But if you just run a Google search, you'll see a little um, like control looking thing over in the right hand corner, and you can click on that and you can click on advanced settings. And you can see the most common ones, and you don't have to know the operators. You can just fill out a form. And that advanced search, when you're trying to find information and data for research, is um, it, it's absolutely awesome. And I think the other thing, most people know this in this day and age, but the first result is probably an advertisement. And all the ones on the side are advertisements. And don't click those unless, you know, if you're looking for Hilton Hotel in uh, San Francisco – and it's an advertisement for Hilton.com in San Francisco, then that ad actually serves you. But when you're doing most academic research, not only is it not going to serve you, not only is it going to annoy you, but you're also spending the advertiser's money, which you may or may not care about. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. It's, you know, one of the other ones that I like to use if I'm on a particular site or I want to search a particular site for something, you know, uh, like in my, in my job, I have to search for information at Microsoft's website. Microsoft, believe it or not, has an absolutely terrible website uh, for finding information. Things are oh, I believe just it. so messy. So I, I can it. actually, in the Google search box, type in the word site, S-I-T-E, colon, Microsoft.com, space, what I'm looking for, and Google will restrict its results to information that was at Microsoft.com. And I will often be on anybody, not just Microsoft, but anybody's website using their search feature, can't find diddly dick to fix, to find, you know, right? And then run over to Google and do a site search uh, for their domain, and Google will tell me what I need to know. Right. You know, most people are running WordPress blogs. The search feature is nice, but it, it's it's very rudimentary search technology. It's not. I don't think Google. I don't think people really appreciate Google for what it what it is today. When when it started out, it was like this advanced search directory type thing, and it wasn't very advanced. And people like me that decided right away I can make money with this could basically just whip it into doing anything we wanted with a little bit of keyword stuffing and stuff like that. And it was pretty easy to manipulate. Today, it is basically the closest thing I believe that we have to artificial intelligence. It is it is utilizing what we call learning algorithms. And it'll learn things from user behavior like, okay, if they rank something for uh, edible mushrooms, and thousands of people search for that and click on that, but every single person that clicks on that immediately hits the back arrow. The computer will actually learn. I mean, this is like going back to war games type stuff and go, oh, this site is not serving these people. They don't like it. And it will it will adjust its rankings based not just on the site and the links to it and all these other functions. It'll base its its rankings on the way that users perceive the information. And it's getting more and more personal where if you search for cat and you are always looking at pictures of house cats, and I search for a cat, and I'm always looking uh, at pictures of, like, jaguars and stuff. It'll actually show us different results, Yeah, which is kind of neat and kind of spooky, too. <laughs> it, it is absolutely both. So, yeah, I, I really can encourage listeners more. Uh, go, you know, spend some time. If you don't want to use Google, use Bing, use something else. You know, there's a number of them out there. But just learn how they work and turn it into a resource, there's, there's no faster way. You can't tell me that it's faster to 
dig up the weather by turning on the weather channel for your local area than just hitting the web. You know, and so just get comfortable with that. Use that as a resource. Yeah, I completely agree with that. Um, and there's a lot of ways that you can uh, – I'm trying to think of the one right now, but there is – it's called Scroogle, I think, or something like that, basically, where it gives you Google's results but protects your identity, and you can always go through – proxies, uh, well-known one, hidemyass.com. You can jump through a couple proxies if you really want to do that. Um, I think that sometimes we, we get a little bit too over our shoulder, but, you know, I can see times where people would want to protect uh, that information because they might be looking something up for academic reasons that now show up on, you know, freaking terrorist watch lists. Like somebody could be doing a, a college report on terrorism. Mm-hmm. And virtually everything they look up is going to make them look like they're, you know, based on these 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 protocols, like they're a potential terrorist because they might be looking up bomb making and stuff like that. Sure. Well, they're doing a report on terror, you know, because a lot of college students are doing that exact thing right now. That's one of their theses or or whatever terrorism in the world or uh, stuff going on in the developing world, and that's always going to creep in there. So I can see why people would want to protect themselves from that. Yeah, it's you know if if you got something that's really kind of hairy that you want to research, go go down to the library, do it there. <laughs> uh, like you said, it's sometimes it's not the computer that's compromised; it's the operator. There's what is it? There's no there's no patch for stupid or something like that. You guys say um, you can't fix stupid. You can't yeah. fix stupid. <laughs> there's no upgrade for a stupid operator or right. something. Actually, something I, funny I think that was a. Say. I think Bill Engvall was the one that coined that. Oh yeah, you know the comedian building well, funny guy. Can't fix stupid. I might was that? Or maybe it was Ron White. No, yeah, you're right. Ron you're White. right. Sorry, wrong one. Stupid. <laughs> At least he made it famous. Well, hey man, it's been a great interview. Um, great stuff. And I know you're also a martial artist, so we'll have to set you up and have you come back and talk to us about that. I'd be happy to. Uh, any final time. thoughts for folks today as far as technology goes? Um. You know, don't don't let it be a burden. It, for so many people, technology is a burden. You know, don't don't feel daunted. Just recognize that it's it's a wave. It's gonna keep coming. There's gonna be more. There's gonna be new stuff. You know, you can you can save up to buy that new gizmo, whatever. And yeah, there's gonna be a new, faster, better, cheaper one in three or six months. And you just need to reconcile that. Um, you know, don't don't. And you say this all the time. Don't buy crap just because it's new and supposedly better. Yeah. I can't tell you how many, you know, computers have actually gotten worse. As is, I'll, I'll end on this. Great example. If you have a Toshiba computer from the 80s, it probably still works. I doubt you still have it because it's useless now, but yeah. it will last longer than a Toshiba computer you buy now. Yeah, I had an old laptop with like the first version of XP on it. And it actually didn't come with XP. It was, like, so old, it came with not Millennium, because that was terrible, but whatever <laughs> was before Millennium. And then I upgraded it to XP. And when it finally just crapped out, uh, I didn't lose any data or anything, but I was devastated because it was such a good machine. Yep. Yeah, it really was. And uh, uh, so, yeah, you're right. And uh, But, yeah, I mean, that's, that's, that's always great advice. You know, buy the best you can afford applies a lot of times, but define best. Right. You know, <laughs> I mean, I think that's most, it's not always most expensive. No, if it's not going to make your life better, go, you know, go buy some more food you can put up. Absolutely, I agree with that. 
Hey, I think on that note, we'll go ahead and wrap up, Jeremy. So, uh, folks, today, this has been Jack Spirico along with Jeremy Lesniak, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, and we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way. Revolution